you've heard the term exercise is medicine, right? So if you exercise and you're healthier, you also reduce your risk of having some sort of cardiac event or a heat related event during a heat wave, right? Elderly people who have chronic disease are, are unhealthy and so forth are the ones that are at most, most at risk to experiencing um, heat stroke or heat illness during, uh, during a heat wave. But if they, even if they just exercise and they're healthier and some of those chronic conditions are, are alleviated, well, then that reduces the risk as well. So it may improve their kind of resilience to the heat per se, because they're, they're fitter and they have partial acclimation, but just the fact that they're healthier um, might, might help them through the heat wave as well. Cause VO2 max is probably the, the greatest predictor for um, longevity, right? So, you know, the fitter you are uh, kind of has kind of more bang for your buck. You're better able to tolerate the heat, but you're also healthier. Welcome to the Degrees of Health podcast, where we dove into the heat, the cold, and the spectrum of health in between. We had an awesome conversation with Julian Perriard. Julian is the acting director at the University of Canberra's Research Institute for Sport and Exercise, where he leads the environmental physiology theme. We discussed how the human body changes and adapts to the heat, specifically during exercise, how our bodies work to cool themselves down in the heat, the effects of pre-cooling before exercise on performance and all the different mechanisms at play and what happens to our body in the heat. The strongest will is the will that knows how to bend. This is consistent with the larger theme of how the human body adapts to the cold and the heat and what we can learn from that. I really hope you enjoy the conversation and learn as much as I did. Julian's a fascinating guy and I'm sure you'll learn loads. With that, here is our conversation with Julian Perriard. Awesome. Well, uh, Julian, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Looking forward to talking about heat stress. Yes, love heat stress. It was a love-hate relationship thing, I guess. That's I used right. to uh, I used to live in Singapore and do a lot of competitive CrossFit. And oh, I was yeah. convinced that just being out there in the heat, 100% humidity, a run out in that heat feels completely different to a run back home in the UK here. I mean... I'm sure it does. Yes. It really <laughs> does. But I mean, you, you spent a lot of time in uh, exercising in heat as an athlete yourself and you're, you're uh, in your journey. I mean, I'd love to understand more about your journey from sort of athlete to then uh, working yeah. at the intersection between heat and performance. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, athlete, yeah, I guess I did compete as a uh, triathlete for Canada. Um, wasn't very good. I mean, I was all right, but uh, yeah, wasn't going to the Olympics or anything. I didn't do World Cups and Continental Cups. So I raced in a few hot places. I raced in Hawaii and Puerto Rico. Um, that was an interesting one. That was, that was very hot down there. Um, but I guess even then as an athlete, that's, that's actually have, after having done my masters on, um, post-exercise, heat stress, so forth, um, the heat wasn't really on my radar as an athlete. I was just kind of training and really never thought about heat acclimation and kind of mitigation strategies for heat. So it's really towards the end actually. Um, and then when I was thinking about PhDs that I really kind of fell into heat and performance um, and thought about it even more. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird actually, because I did my master's in that. And then when I was an athlete, I was just thinking, yeah, train, train, train. Um, afterwards is where I kind of developed my interest more so in, um, in exercising in the heat. So I'm Canadian. I don't know if you can tell by the accent, but I did my PhD in, uh, in Sydney. So uh, that's where I really got interested in understanding um, how fatigue develops during prolonged exercise. So aerobic exercise. Um, and I guess the started, the journey started there with a PhD and then working in Qatar for a few years and then back in Australia here in Canberra. 
Love it. Love it. I think a good starting point, at least for, for the listener and myself, would be understanding the differences of exercising in normal temperatures versus actual, actually what happens to your body physiologically when you're exercising in the heat. I'd love if yeah. you'd sort of double click on that. It'd be great. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, so basically when we exercise in the heat, all our physiological, well, not all, but most of our physiological responses, at least those that are related to the exercise are exacerbated or become worse. Um, so because when we exercise, uh, we get hot. So I think one of the first things we need to think about or to remember is that as humans, we're quite inefficient. So we produce lots of heat. So when we exercise roughly about 20% of the energy that we convert goes into movement and 80% is released as heat. So we get quite hot. So in cool conditions, uh, we can lose heat to that environment. So there's two ways we can lose heat. One is via convection. Uh, so we lose heat from the skin, basically as wind or airflow goes through our skin. And if the air temperature is lower than our skin temperature, then we can lose heat to the environment. Um, but when it gets hot and ambient temperature is close to skin temperature, then that gradient is reduced or even reversed. So if ambient temperature is hotter than skin temperature, we can actually gain heat via convection from the environment. And the only other way we can lose heat is by the evaporation of sweat. So in cooler conditions, sweat and convection, so evaporation of sweat and convection are two pathways for heat loss. But when it's hot, evaporation of sweat is the only way we lose heat. So those, those beads of sweat that form on our skin, they need to evaporate. So if they don't evaporate, we're only getting dehydrated essentially and we're getting um, going to exacerbate our, our, our responses. So um, one of the other things as well is we increase our skin blood flow to lose heat by a convection. So whether it's hot or not, we still um, increase our skin blood flow. So that kind of also exacerbates the, the cardiovascular response because we need to send blood not only to the working muscles, but to the periphery uh, to lose heat. So that kind of exacerbates uh, the whole cardiovascular response and increases our heart rate, especially at the start of exercise. And the hotter we get, um, essentially um, our heart senses that. So the sinoatrial node in the heart kind of senses blood temperature and intrinsically it increases our heart rate a little bit. So as we get hotter, so when we think of thermal strain, we have to think not only of core temperature, but core temperature, muscle temperature, skin temperature, so our whole body temperature increases um, and that exacerbates the cardiovascular response. So um, we have to send blood to the periphery, increases heart rate, but also as we get hot, um, at, um, autonomically, that increases our heart rate as well. So our cardiovascular response is exacerbated. So if you are running in 15 degrees Celsius at 13 kilometers per hour, you might have a certain heart rate, let's say 150, for example. Um, and if you start running in the heat, same speed, you'll start off at a heart rate of, one, of 150, but as your exercise progresses and the cardiovascular strain is exacerbated due to that rise in thermal strain and whole body temperature, then you'll find that your heart rate keeps creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, and creeping up. So essentially exercising in the heat just exacerbates all of our cardiovascular, well, exacerbates our cardiovascular response. Um, and perceptually, we feel that as well. So, you know, the rating of perceived exertion, uh, you might know that scale from six to 20 or one to 10. So whatever might feel as a five, might start as a, in cool conditions, might start as a five in, in the heat, but then as we get hotter and hotter, it kind of progresses to a six, seven, eight, nine, and can even reach a 10 if we uh, exercise for a very long period. So, okay. I mean, I think anecdotally, I think anyone who's trained in the heat can understand how this is so much harder. This is, it, it's almost incomparable if the heat's significant enough. Our body has mechanisms to cool itself down, right? So obviously sweating being one, as you said, your heart rate 
gets faster and compensates, I guess. Um, vasodilation yeah. maybe as well. That's right. What, yeah. what other mechanisms do the sort of that happen naturally without any sort of uh, external intervention? Well, that's it. That's the only two pathways we can lose heat. I mean, we can lose heat via evaporation of, of um, when we breathe. But in terms of autonomic responses, it's only, as you said, an increase in cutaneous blood flow, and we lose heat there via convection. Um, I mean, there's four pathways through which we lose heat. So evaporation, convection, radiation, and conduction. So conduction is when we touch something and we transfer heat to something that's cooler than us. But when we're cycling or running, I mean, there's nothing that we're touching other than the handlebars when you're cycling. And then obviously that kind of is limited heat loss. When you're running, basically you have your feet in your shoes. So you're not losing heat via conduction because you're not touching anything. Um, you lose very minimal heat through radiation. You can gain a bit of heat, obviously, with through radiation from the sun. But convection through airflow and movement and sweating, um, uh, evaporation of sweat are the two pathways. Those are, those are autonomic pathways, but they're also, they're also obviously behavioral thermoregulation. So there's behaviors we can adopt, obviously, to kind of cool ourselves down. So if there's a glass of cold water and I'm running, I can pour that over my head. Hmm. Um, it'll feel cold. It won't lower my body temperature. Well, probably won't lower it at all. It might lower my skin temperature, you know, underneath the, the cold drink in the water. Um, and if it's a hot, hot, dry day, pouring some extra water on my skin might help uh, evaporate even more. Because if you're running in a, in a very dry condition, you might find that you don't have many beads of sweat kind of dripping off your skin because they're evaporating most of them. And you might even find that there's some kind of salt, salty discharge on your, on your jumper or your sweater because um, of the sodium that we lose through sweating. It just basically, the water evaporates or the beads of sweat evaporate and the kind of sodium stays there. Whereas if in your, you're in humid conditions, you'll find that, yeah, you're very kind of wet. And then those, some of the drips of sweat are, are falling off the skin. So in the dry condition, if you pour water, it doesn't have to be sweat, it could be water. And those beads of water, if they evaporate off your skin, it's kind of like sweat. So it's artificially putting sweat on your skin and those can cool you down as well. Uh, I see. It's interesting, we had um, a sauna researcher called Joy Hussain on, who actually, she's in Australia as well. And uh, we spoke about the differences between a dry sauna, sort of your traditional Finnish sauna, and a hammam, like a steam. And uh, she was saying how the steam is so much harder because the humidity stops your body from sweating. And I guess that's the similar sort of mechanism or uh, similar approach here, right? It, you, it blocks the skin from actually sweating and releasing that heat. So Yeah, well, you're still sweating. You're still sweating. So you're still producing those beads of sweat, but they're not evaporating. So it's the evaporation of that bead of sweat that cools the skin underneath mm -hmm. the bead. And then that cools basically the blood vessels going underneath and then they bring the blood, cooler blood back to the central circulation. So it's really those beads of sweat evaporation, uh, evaporating that are, uh, that are important. Okay. And when it's humid outside, the vapor content in the air is so high that it can't absorb basically the moisture of that bead of sweat. Uh, okay, I see. So I guess that's sort of like what your body can do naturally, right? And uh, you can't really edit that. But what, what sort of what interventions are there to help when you're uh, in the heat exercise? Yeah, well, there's there's a host of interventions, I guess, and it, there's different levels, and there's some that are more acute, and some that are more chronic. So um, acutely, I guess one of the things that we've been talking about now is, is is sweating, and sweating again can lead to dehydration. So ensuring that you're properly hydrated before exercise and try to replenish those water losses during exercise is probably um, 
up that list of, you know, what are the things that are important that you want to do? Uh, because research has shown that if you get dehydrated, the more dehydrated you get, um, you affect the skin blood flow response. The cutaneous vasodilation is reduced. So therefore that convective heat loss is reduced. And you might also even sweat, uh, reduce your sweating response. So you're reducing the amount of sweat that you can produce and therefore evaporate and cool you down. So if you really get dehydrated to a significant level, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent of your body mass loss, um, then that can compromise your autonomic thermoregulation. So being well hydrated beforehand, during, um, so that has led to things like hyperhydration. So that means drinking lots of fluids before competition. And you can drink those fluids with like glycerol or sodium. So some sort of agent that helps conserve um, water. Because if you just drink lots of water, you'll just create more urine. So you'll have to go pee quite a lot before your competition. You'll gain, you'll have a bit of an increase maybe in body water content, but less so than when you combine that water with an osmotic agent that helps kind of retain that water. So um, hyperhydration is one. And then another one is kind of planning your hydration strategy during competition, which is an area of research that's quite uh, contentious, I would say. So some people suggest that you drink to thirst. So however thirsty you are, you just drink. Others suggest that you have a, a plan for drinking based on the competition that you'll be doing or the event that you'll be doing. And I'm probably kind of in the middle of that. And it's more of a, it depends question, you know? So if you're going to be running for half an hour or cycling for half an hour, the chances of getting massively dehydrated are pretty small, right? You're not going to lose 5% of your body mass in half an hour. So you can probably drink to thirst, but if you're doing a three hour marathon or a three hour long bike ride and it's hot, especially hot, then it's probably important to understand what your sweat rate is, how much you can replenish. Because again, you can probably replenish much more on the bike than you can on the run. You know, obviously running, there's more impact, a lot more kind of water sloshing around the stomach. So understanding the event that you're doing, the length, the, the environment that you'll be doing it, and there's also the, I guess, the, the type of exercise that you'll be doing. Okay, nice. The, um, I just want to go back quickly, just double click on something you said, which is the osmotic agent. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a general principle, water follows salt in the body, right? Yeah. So um, when you were talking about like uh, actually at, ensuring adequate hydration as opposed to just getting loads of water in and flushing it out, hmm. if you had an osmotic agent, which I'd love to actually double click on like what the difference, what, is that electrolyte or is that? It, it can be an electrolyte, but um, it's sodium, sodium or glycerol are the ones and potassium. Uh, but the ones that have been investigated a bit more are um, yeah, sodium and glycerol. So glycerol was actually on the banned list for water up until a few years ago um, because it helped retain water. So, you know, um, for urine tests and things like that, or even um, for blood tests with the, with, the, um, with the biological passport, there was some suggestion or ideas potentially that if you, if you use that and you retain more water, you can maybe hide something, you know, or if you're taking some sort of supplement that's illegal, but now yeah. it's been taken off. So athletes have, or research has kind of gone back into glycerol to see how much it helps um, in terms of retaining water. So that's one, um, and sodium as well. So sodium obviously helps with retaining water because of the um, osmotic pressure. So if you increase your um, sodium, I guess, levels in your, uh, in your blood, and then you'll retain a bit more water as well. Okay, right. So there's, I mean, I think often people jump to these um, electrolyte supplements when actually a bit of table salt is just as effective, right, but sodium. Yeah, you probably have to go with a bit of trial and error to determine what is, and there's, there's some kind of charts out there 
because uh, you don't want to take too much salt either, or else it's not going to be not going to be good. Um, but yeah, there's some um, there's some things to work out there. The other thing as well is you know you need to determine um, how much sodium you, you you lose during exercise because some people lose more than others, so that could factor into how much you take and how much fluids you take uh, before exercise. I'm, I'm pleased you, I'm pleased you brought that up. We um, I used to play uh, sort of reasonably serious rugby, and uh, the club I was attached to had um a two sort of principles which is hydration doesn't start on the day it starts sort of 48 hours before and then in the club all next to the urinals they had a hydration chart which is just while you're having a pee you can mm -hmm. see how clear your pee is and it told you if you're hydrated or not is that accurate i was always like really i don't know if this is this is true is that a good measure the sort of visible color of your urine to see if you are mm -hmm. yes and no um so if it's the first morning urine, then probably, uh, because that urine is concentrated and you haven't peed all night and you haven't drank just before um, you've urinated. So that's probably not a bad indication. It's the same thing with the urine-specific gravity, which is another test. You can look at the specific gravity of urine, so the kind of like the, the osmolites in urine, for example. Um, if it's the first morning void, that's probably relatively accurate. But as we were saying before, you know, if you're trying to hyperhydrate and you drink quite a lot, so if you drink three, four liters in an hour, then you're going to have to urinate and you're going to pee quite a lot of water. And then you might have actually quite a clear urine, but that water might not yet have been absorbed um, into the body. So your plasma osmolality, I guess the concentration of fluid relative to um, osmols or sodium in your blood might not, or might still be, might still show that you're still dehydrated, for example. So if it's the first thing in the morning, not too bad, but if it's in the afternoon after you've drank a lot, well, then your urine's going to be clear, but you might not necessarily be well hydrated. Okay, so going into any form of heat, we should make sure we're adequately hydrated to have some adequate electrolytes or, uh, I forget the word again, osmolytic? Os osmolytes, yeah. It, well, osmolytes. In your pre, yeah, yeah, in your prehydration strategy, and then even during as well, like if you're, um, you know, if, if, if you're prone to have, High concentrations of electrolytes in your so in your sweat, and then you want to kind of supplement during as well. Yeah. Okay, nice. So it's quite interesting to understand why. I know we double clicked on it, which is, in my understanding, sort of more for help with a bit of repetition, Julian. You know, a bit slower, <laughs> but it's if you aren't adequately hydrated, it affects how you can vasodilate during the heat, which then affects how your body can turn itself down, uh, turn itself down, cool itself down. That's right. Yeah. Well, okay. so, so yes, that's right. So it can affect how much you can vasodilate and then lose heat via convection. It can affect how much you can sweat. So those beads of sweat, you're producing less of them. So you're, you're also losing less heat, but it also exacerbates the cardiovascular response as well. So if you're losing a lot of, um, of, um, of sweat, then your blood volume is reduced. So therefore for every given, so if you're exercising a given heart rate, and you have less blood volume, then that's less blood filling the heart. So because you need a certain amount of blood filling the heart to be sent to the skin, um, because it's vasodilated, and to be sent to the muscles that are exercising, then you'll have to increase your heart rate to maintain your cardiac output. Um, so that's why being dehydrated also exacerbates the, uh, the cardiovascular response, because the end diastolic volume is, um, is smaller, so you have to increase that heart rate. Okay, understood. I guess this is applicable if you're exercising in the heat or actually just you're a regular practitioner of using the sauna. I think uh, it, it helps understand the sort of uh, the everyday practitioner of just heat exposure, how you can not mess that up and go in and actually reap the benefits of it as opposed to do yeah. yourself some harm. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, if you're going for a sauna for 15 minutes, you probably don't need to hyperhydrate and, you know, have a, a massive hydration strategy. You probably just 
you know, drink a little bit and you'll be fine. But yeah, if you do anything much, much longer, then uh, then absolutely. And I mean, there's a, there's ways to actually look at your sweat rate and actually very simple ways because the most simple way is just body mass, essentially. So ideally, you wear yourself nude before you do your exercise and then nude afterwards because you can have some sweat trapped in the clothing, sometimes up to, you know, 150 grams of sweat. So that can kind of throw it off. But if you measure yourself pre and post, if you don't drink anything, the difference is basically how much you've sweated. And if you drink during there, let's say I start off, I'm at 70 kilos and I finish at 68 kilos and I know I drank one liter of water. Well, um, essentially you just add that. So I've, I've lost three kilos. So I've sweated three liters essentially. Uh, okay. That's, that's, that's nice and simple, um, yeah. which is good. How, what role, what role does the heat have in performance gain? I know you mentioned it can add uh, a, a greater perceived exertion rate. Is that perceived exertion rate real? And does it translate to physical benefits as to training in a normal environment? Oh, it's definitely real. So if, I guess if we go, if we go to look to, I guess the pathways or the mechanisms by which we, our performance is reduced or impaired in the heat, um, like we have to think this is an integrative system. The body's an integrative system. So there's not just one thing and the decision. So there's different forms of exercises, constant load in the lab anyways, there's constant load exercise to exhaustion. So I say, okay, you run or you cycle at this given speed or power output until you can't anymore. So there's nothing you can do. You can maybe change your cadence a little bit, but you know, you'll still have the resistance will change, but the ultimate power or speed at which you'll be exercising is the same until you stop. Or I say, okay, do a self-paced exercise or a time trial. So I say, okay, finish 15 kilometers running or 40 kilometers cycling as fast as you can. And then for you can adjust your pace during um, the exercise. So um, what happens during exercise um, is as we get hotter and hotter, our heart rate kind of goes up, but our VO2 max also decreases um, because essentially we reach maximum heart rate at a submaximal workload. So let's say I were to say exercise at 70% of your VO2 max, and that's 200 watts on the bike cycle ergometer. And I say, do that in 15 degrees, you know, after an hour, you know, you go up initially, your core temperature goes up, then it kind of plateaus. So does your heart rate and you kind of get to a steady state and it's no problem. But if I say, go and do that in 40 degrees and 40% relative humidity, well, the first five, 10 minutes, you know, you probably see at the same heart rate as you are in cool conditions, but eventually you'll see your core temperature kind of keep rising, keep rising. And in conjunction with that, you'll see a rise in heart rate, basically. So after 45, 60 minutes, you'll be very close to your maximum heart rate uh, and your core temperature will be in the 39s, maybe 40 or 40 or above. So basically you get to a point where you're basically at maximum heart rate. Uh, and if you do that, then you reach your VO2 max, but your VO2 peak, I guess, in those conditions. So it's significantly reduced. Normally, you might get to 350 watts in a normal test to get to your V2 max. But here, because the heat's exacerbated your cardiovascular response and your heart rate's gone up, uh, you've reached your limit, essentially, of oxygen uptake. So that's why you stop during constant load exercise. Now, during self-paced exercise, which you can alter the, the power output, you'll probably start off and you'll hold certain power output in cool conditions and you'll have a little end spurt when you know you're finishing. But in the heat, you'll probably start off similarly for 10, 15 minutes. But as you get hotter, um, maintaining the same power output will lead to a higher heart rate. So obviously, if you're doing a time trial and you're at 175 heart rate in cool conditions and your maximum heart rate's 200, and in the heat, you know, you start off at 175, which you can maintain, and then it kind of creeps up and creeps up. 
well, you'll at some point you'll have to slow down or you won't be able to keep going. So that's where that decrement in performance starts to occur in the heat. So um, during self-paced exercise, so you'll maintain that same heart rate and you'll have the same RPE because the relative intensity is the same, but the absolute work rate, so the power output or the running speed will be lower. But what happens is that in the background, your VO2 max is decreasing progressively. So the relative intensity that you're maintaining is very similar to that of cool conditions, but the absolute intensity, so the absolute wattage or speed is decreasing. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I think I think it does. And I, I mean, um, I'd love to sort of, my understanding of it, and please like shoot me down if I'm wrong, but it's in the heat, you can reach your maximal heart rate more efficiently. And as a result, you might have some training benefits off the back of that. Okay, well, that's a, that's a separate thing. So, so okay. if I wouldn't say acutely it's efficient because, you know, you're getting tired at a lower work rate or you're getting tired sooner. But um, if, you, if you go into the heat, so it comes back to your question earlier about, you know, ways to kind of improve performance in the heat. So I talked about hydration. Another one is cooling, we can talk about in a minute. But the other one, which is probably the most important one, is heat acclimation or heat acclimatization. So heat acclimation is repeated exposure to an artificial environment. So you mentioned the sauna before. That's one, um, exercising in a climate chamber where you set the temperature and the humidity or um, exercising outdoors and then jumping in a hot bath, for example. Those are our, our kind of artificial hot environments. So that's heat acclimation and heat acclimatization is getting used to the, to a hot environment. And we have seasonal heat acclimatization, maybe not in the UK because it doesn't get too hot, no. but in Australia, for example, you know, it gets hot in the summer. So, you know, when the summer arrives, you're not well acclimatized. By the end of summer, if you exercise, you know, on a regular basis every week outside, you acclimatize to the heat or athletes sometimes, you know, um, it's, it's winter time and they're training indoors and they're going to go compete in another hemisphere where it's summer Then they get there early and they train outside to acclimatize to the hotter environment. So if you, I'll call it, I'll call it heat acclimation from now on, but if you heat acclimate, um, and the, I guess the laboratory based guidelines for that are, you know, 10 to 14 days, ideally, um, 60 to 90 minutes per day, then you'll adapt to the heat. So what that means is that your resting core temperature will be a bit lower. Um, that means the core temperature at which you'll start sweating, which is good, obviously, because you lose heat to the MR, will be a bit lower. Your sweat rate uh, is going to be, um, your sweat sensitivity is going to be higher. So for a given core temperature, you'll sweat more. Your maximum sweat rate will be higher. So your ability to lose heat to the environment essentially is improved. There's improvements in, in blood flow as well cutaneous blood flow, but sweating is really the primary avenue for heat loss in the heat. Um, so that'll be improved. Uh, you might have an improvement or an expansion of plasma volume. So your total blood volume increases. So that helps obviously support your cardiovascular stability. So when you're exercising in the heat at a given workload, your heart rate will be a bit lower. Um, therefore, your perceived exertion will be lower. Uh, your thermal comfort will be lower as well because your core temperature and your skin temperature are slightly lower. So you feel more comfortable um, in that environment, your thirst sensation might be improved. So if you're drinking to thirst, you'll probably dehydrate less because you'll be, you know, you'll feel that thirst a bit more. So you'll be more efficient at drinking. So all of those adaptations will then help you perform in the heat. So, um, that again is in the, in the lab scenario, but I guess 
when you talk to athletes, that's where the, the caveats come in. Because as you know, athletes have quite regimented training programs, right? So if you tell an athlete before the Olympics, you know, go 14 days in a row at, for 90 minutes a day training in the heat, they're going to say, the coach is going to say, well, wait a minute, you know, he's got this athlete, she or he has different things to do. So with the athletes, you kind of have to change that around a little bit. So maybe you do it a few days or a week, you know, a month before, and then you do some top-ups regularly to kind of um, build into the training program so it doesn't interfere with the taper and so forth. So um, that's how athletes are suggested to to do it. So there's different ways, obviously, to do it. It's, it's super interesting. I mean, the I'd love to go down to get your thoughts on pre-cooling. Just before, and just make a note of that before I forget. Yeah, before yeah. we go on that, what implement, uh, what can sort of the everyday athlete learn from those extremes of athletes uh, getting heat acclimatized before they go off on whatever it is they've got to do. But what lessons can sort of the everyday athlete learn from those extremes of temperature? Um, well, even just for the athletes that are doing you know, triathlons in their, in their community and so forth, just understanding how important adapting to the heat is. Um, you know, unless there's unseasonably hot weather at the start of the season where that can make the athletes more vulnerable to, to exertional heat illness, because that's the other thing as well I forgot to mention is that being heat acclimatized kind of reduces the risk of exertional heat illness, which is kind of a continuum from muscle cramps to heat exhaustion, to heat injury, to heat stroke, which can be deadly. So I guess for athletes, uh, just understanding um, if they have a goal race, when that race will be, and most amateur races are usually in the morning, so it's not too much of an issue unless it's an Ironman. Obviously that can be quite long, um, but just understanding how their body reacts to the heat um, and being prepared for um, competing in, in hot conditions. Now, I think one of the things that for the everyday athletes, there's lots of things that athletes can do. Um, and I think oftentimes people try to find shortcuts to train and, and do things. But I would say, you know, if you don't have your training well and right and you're not training properly before your race, I'd say train well and do well uh, in your workouts rather than trying to do some heat acclimation. You know, do that and then supplement that and, you know, add the heat acclimation. So don't try to find shortcuts. Having said that, um, heat is more and more used now as a supplement to training to kind of stimulate the training adaptation. So not necessarily all and always for adapting to the heat, to compete in the heat, but just to add a training stimulus. Um, so some athletes might do it um, to increase plasma volume, to increase total blood volume, which may actually help in cool conditions, um, which is another area that is, I'd say, maybe somewhat contentious. So. And that's, that's whether heat acclimation helps improve performance in cool conditions. And the verdict on that is that it's certainly not detrimental. So you're not going to impair your performance in cool conditions and you might actually improve it. So there's more and more research now showing that if you're heat acclimated, it actually can help performance in cooler conditions uh, because that's of all massive. The, yeah. 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 Do you think that that literature, I mean, obviously needs more studying, but over the next sort of five, 10 years, do you think that would which way do you think that would uh, would go? Do you think it's going to prove that correct, where it does help in cooling conditions, or do you think it would just be uh, a fringe benefit at the best? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not too sure, and it's kind of in, it depends. It might also depend on like the athletes or the level of athletes that's that's tested and on which heat acclimation is conducted. Because uh, one of the things with heat acclimation, as you can imagine, like running a you know 14-day heat acclimation trial with pre and post testing, that's a month basically, right? So it's very difficult to run heat acclimation studies. And the difficult thing with there is having a control group, right? So seeing if it's a training effect or if it's actually the heat acclimation. Because if you take people and you say, 
oh, you know, these university students, they fit the criteria for inclusion. And then you start training them a lot and, you know, and they don't train 10, 14 days in a row on a regular basis. And they do that. They have a bit of time to recover. Then you do some post-testing. Well, there's probably a mix of heat adaptations, but also a training effect there. So you'd have to have a really good control group to identify, you know, well, how much of the heat acclimation protocol you're doing is uh, beneficial in terms of heat exposure or beneficial in terms of how much you've just trained more than you normally train. Mm. And that kind of again comes back down to who we, who the population that's being, I guess, tested yeah. is. Definitely. I think the, uh, in my own anecdotal research, or not research, uh, just being an idiot. And uh, I used to, uh, I used to swing a kettlebell in the sauna. And um, because I, there was one study and I sort of took a bit too literally, which is if you were to exercise and then follow up in the sauna, you reap more aerobic gains than if you weren't to have a sauna after. And I thought, okay, great. I'm just going to work out in the sauna sometimes. And yeah. re whether it did um, physiologically actually boost my fitness or I was just working out more, whatever it was, I think mentally it was a lot harder doing those swings or burpees in a sauna than it was outside of it. So it, the, the benefit might just be your sort of mental threshold, what you can endure. And then when yeah. you get back to cooler conditions, it's hard, but it's not as hard. So Again, I mean, the sort of psychological variables you can never test for may yeah, actually be right. quite potent, right? So it's quite a placebo effect. But I mean, even if it's a placebo effect and it has an effect and improves your performance, well, if it improves performance, it's beneficial, I guess, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially you go to the sort of the one percenters of uh, elite athletes, all the edge they can get. The, yes. Um, there's this uh, a researcher called Eric Lee, who hopefully is coming on the podcast. We've been in touch with him. Um, He's actually moving to Canada uh, in a bit. And he, he's got a lovely study where two groups, group A and group B, undergo an eight-week cycling program. Group A doesn't have a sauna after. Group B has a 15, 20-minute sauna after. Group B, when they did the post-follow-up endurance tested tests, on average was miles better than group A. Is that the heat? Or is it just actually sauna's a little bit of an exercise mimetic and they've just been doing more exercise? Hard to split, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I guess if yeah, it's the heat. If if that's the effect of the heat, then I would save the heat. I mean, if yeah, if it's two two if it's two groups and they were the same beforehand, they did the same training program, and you added the heat, then yeah, it's the effect of the heat. Where exactly it comes from? Then I, yeah, I hadn't seen that study. That's that's interesting. I'd be interested I'll, to know. I'll ping it over. It, it it is interesting. Yeah, that was yeah. the one I took very literally and was like, great. I need to read and nothing else. What did else. they assign those improvements to? Uh, they they assigned it to the combination of exercise plus heat therapy or whatever you want to call it heat exposure was better yeah. than just exercise alone but mechanistically they didn't measure plasma volume or hemoglobin mass or uh they might have those details i might have glazed over julian if i'm honest but i will i will i'll, I'll make a note of it now so I don't forget and i'll, I'll think yeah. it away yeah that'd be interesting to see if yeah anything mechanistically yeah. was different definitely definitely and then actually off the back of um having joy hussein on who again i mentioned uh researchers sauna and what happens to sweat during heat is mm. if that study was proved out true the experiment i'd want to run is you have group a and b again but one has a dry sauna and one has a wet sauna a hammam like the, the really yeah, humid yeah. one and to see which is more effective yeah again well it's funny you mentioned that because that brings two things one so there is quite a, um, a host of research that's come out now from neil walsh's lab he was a banger and i think now he's at john moore's liverpool Liverpool, John Moore, sorry. Uh, and what they did is that, so they exercised in cool conditions and then they basically went into a hot bath afterwards for 20 to 40 minutes. And that was the heat acclimation that they did. Uh, and they compared that to a, 
Um, well, they called it a traditional heat acclimation regimen, but I'm not too sure because they it was up to 60 minutes per day and only 33 degrees, which is traditionally you'd have 40 degrees and 60 to 90 minutes. Uh, so I don't think the stimulus for heat acclimation or exercise heat acclimation was as strong. But basically what they saw is that the adaptations from exercising in cool and then jumping in a hot bath were more robust than the heat acclimation regimen that they uh, had another group or a second group of athletes do. Uh, but again, I don't think the stimulus was quite as as potent. Um, but then coming back to your question about or your comment about dry and, and humid, uh, that's for different saunas. But I have a student at the moment who's just finished and he's riding up and he looked at um, a crossover design. So the same participants doing dry heat acclimation and humid heat acclimation. Um, and we want to see if there's differences in, in adaptations. And he's just finished. So we haven't had a chance to look at all the data. Um, but oh, well, keep, keep it posted. Yeah. And he's actually doing another study, a uh, systematic review, which is uh, going to be, um, well, I don't know how much I should say because no one's done this before, but basically we're looking at the environmental characteristics and the protocol characteristics of heat acclimation to determine how much they affect uh, the adaptations as well. And that's, yeah, so ambient temperature, kind of humidity, uh, duration of exposures and the length of the protocols themselves. So that should be coming out um, as well. So hopefully in the next six months, those papers will be coming out. Okay, brilliant. Well, we, we can we can have another discussion on that, or maybe a, a round two. Um, sure. it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's in a world where people are looking for an edge um, everywhere. And, you know, your everyday athlete is more like the professional athlete than ever before, you know, with a whoop yeah. and testing a sleep and always looking for an edge. Um, what role does pre-cooling have on... Um, I guess your body temperature as you exercise. Hmm. Well, like I mentioned before, you know, as I said, as, as humans, we're quite inefficient. We produce lots of heat essentially, right? So if you pre-cool your body, what you're doing is you're allowing more heat storage capacity. So you allow your body to kind of store more heat before you get to a certain core temperature. Uh, so there's different ways of cooling. Um, so there's internal cooling and external cooling. So internal cooling is basically drinking cold water or a slushy. So it goes inside internal and cools you down from, from the inside. Whereas external cooling is obviously anything that's applied externally. So those are your, your cooling vests or ice vests or kind of more evaporative vests that I don't think work very well, or basically going into, um, putting cold towels or jumping in a cold bath, um, and so forth. So there's different ways to pre-cool and there's different levels of effectiveness as well for all those different methods. So the most effective method is jumping into a cold bath. That'll cold, cool you down significantly, but there's a problem with that, right? And with athletes, they always warm up before exercise. So you need to warm up to get, depending on the, the exercise that you're doing, but you need to get your muscles up to a certain temperature to be optimally ready to kind of perform, to be ready to perform optimally. So if you warm up and then you go into a cold bath and then you vasoconstrict and the muscle temperature goes down and core temperature goes down, then you kind of go back out and you you start your exercise. Well, you might not be in an ideal physiological state from a muscle perspective to, to exercise. So there's a compromise there. So you want to cool down a little bit, but not too much. Ideally not, you know, the exercising muscles, too much. So jumping into a cold bath, um, it, well, it can't be too cold and it can't be too long either. So you have to find that kind of happy medium. Um, and then there's, um, you can put like, you can take an esky, for example, or a cooler, put some cold water in there with ice, take some towels, put them in there, wring them out, put them on your legs and across your shoulders, kind of cool you down. Then that cools your skin and kind of cools you down a little bit. Um, if you do that, you kind of need to change the towels over 
you know, every two, three minutes because they kind of warm up. So logistically, you kind of need someone to help you to do that. Um, and if you do that for an hour in combination with drinking a lot of cold ice, you might be able to lower your core temperature by 0 0.2, 0 0.3 degrees, um, which isn't much. And that's probably the best you can do. And then um, if you warm up, sometimes after your warm up, you'll see that you're basically back to your, your normal core temperature. But having said that, if you're 0.3 degrees lower than you would be, if you had normally warmed up and gotten to a higher core temperature, then you're actually starting in, in a bit of a better position. So, um, so that's the idea prolong. of free cooling. Sorry? It would maybe prolong that inevitable rise in temperature. That that's right. Yeah. Ward yeah. it off a little bit further. Okay, interesting. There's another study I'll send you, which is a really fringe study out of Japan in 1991, which showed that if you pre-cool before exercise, what actually follows is luteinizing hormone. Okay. which is really weird but apparently it's just one study right but yeah. anecdotally it's in my blood work as well that's been consistent if you pre-cool before exercise as opposed to the inverse of yeah having a cold plunge after yeah, um, yeah. which actually suppresses luteinizing hormone the inverse actually raises it um, okay. again one study and just a few anecdotal bit of blood work but it's yeah. um, it's interesting how these mechanisms you know they never merely do one thing right they, they affect that's the body right. and that's loads right. of different Everything ways yeah yeah there's nothing yet very in isolation that's for sure no no not at all so what what where do you see this uh literature going and like what do you what do you hope to learn from the heat um with regards to exercise performance and you know what does the next 10 years look like in the research in well, your opinion uh it's a good good question <laughs> and actually, good sorry question. on that i know you can't know things for sure but what would you what would you hope to find what would you really want to know well i know some of the things that we are doing for example so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, I guess, tailor and uh, understand how we can kind of tailor heat adaptations or heat acclimation to to athletes. So understanding each individual athlete's response. Uh, so if you look, you know, at reviews and papers, you get the mean, and everybody kind of goes down by, let's say, resting core temperature goes down by 0.3 degrees. But you have some people going up, some people going down much more, some people right on the mean, and so it's just understanding. Uh, what are some of the factors that we might consider when we're prescribing heat acclimation to an athlete? Um, and if they do a heat acclimation regimen one year um, and they've trained in a specific way ahead of that and they do that the following year, do they get the same adaptations? So just understanding at an individual level, I guess, what we can do with, with heat acclimation. Because uh, I think to a certain degree, you know, depends who you talk to, but I don't think it matters too much what you'll do. You will get adapted. And I mean, we've also suggested that, you know, if you're going to go compete in a hot, dry environment, it's probably better to train in a hot, dry environment ahead of that. Or if it's going to be hot, humid, maybe do that because it's a bit more specific. Even if the adaptations are slightly different or not, maybe you'll get more of a, like I mentioned before, more a psychological appreciation of what that feels like and it'll feel easier. But I mean, if you're exposed to the heat, whether it's exercising in cool conditions, jumping in a bath or a sauna or exercising to reach a certain core temperature and stay there or exercise and reach a certain heart rate and stay there or exercise at home with a couple of heaters on you or extra clothing. If you get hot, you will kind of adapt. Um, and there's different levels to that, obviously. Uh, so, but understanding maybe at the individual level, why some people have a greater expansion of plasma volume than others or what is required for one athlete compared to the other is kind of what we'd like to do. And also understanding what type of heat acclimation is ideal for the athlete. Because like I mentioned before, you know, um, from a, an evidence-based perspective, it's, you know, 10 to 14 days, 16 to 90 minutes, 40 degrees, 40% humidity. 
you do that. Well, okay, that's fine. You'll get adapted with that. But again, for the elite athlete, they can't just do 14 days at 90 minutes in a, you know, in a hot room, four days before you know, an Olympic an Olympic event, you know, to kind of tailor that. And so what that looks like, um, is it multiple heat acclimations during um, a season and then top ups to maintain those adaptations? And then, you know, when you taper, you just do two or three from that last week and you're fine. Or do you uh, do a bit of heat exposure and arrive to competition two weeks in advance so you get used to the environment there? Um, so just kind of understanding how we can tailor that to, to elite athletes is probably one of the things I'd like to explore. And the other one is also given this is, I guess, more public health perspective, but given climate change and um, ambient temperatures kind of getting um, higher and more frequent and severe heat waves, understanding the role of physical activity and climatization you know, throughout the summer, how that can help kind of build our resilience to those heat waves and kind of a, a warming world to a certain degree. How do you know if you're heat adapted? I imagine it's a spectrum and you can't really ever fully, it's not binary, but yeah. How do you know? Very good question. I mean, so if you don't test anything, um, like you don't test yourself, for example, it's hard to know. Like, I mean, if you spend a lot of time outside uh, and it's hot, you know, obviously you'll you'll feel better, and you can look at your metrics. You, you know, if let's say you have a standard running loop or cycling loop that you do, and you go out and it's roughly similar conditions at the start of summer at some point because it's a bit hotter. And then it should be, and then, you know, towards mid summer and then oh, it's similar conditions, but, you know, and you've been training similarly, you haven't changed your training patterns, but you notice your heart rate's lower and you're feeling better. Uh, well, then obviously that's kind of a sign that you're um, climatized. So that's one of the things we're trying to do with, uh, with elite athletes as well, because a lot of them uh, do, do heat acclimation before going to compete in the heat. But what we're trying to, to encourage them to do is kind of a standardized heat response test before and after their heat acclimation regimens. So just exercise, you know, 45 minutes, 60 minutes at a given speed or work rate. Um, look at your heart rate every five, 10 minutes, uh, your RPE, measure your sweat rate pre and post. If you measure core temperature, even better. Uh, but there's different kind of physiological responses that you can measure in a standardized test in ideally standardized environmental conditions so that you can obviously compare um, that you can objectively see if you're acclimatized or acclimated or not. Other than that, it's just going by feel, I guess. Mm. With the, um, we, Eloise and I went to Finland in November. It was minus 13. It's like super cold, but we were in a sauna more than we ever have been off the back of that trip. Considering we spent, we had a sauna every day while we were there. So it was like five, six days. Although the sort of average temperature when we're outside the sauna was really, really cold. Would that intermittent heat exposure lead to being heat adapted when you go to sort of a slightly more harder climate or is it, does it need to be regular exposure? Yeah. Um, good question. I mean, there's such a thing as partial heat acclimation, right? So, um, like I mentioned before, you know, 10 to 14 days is ideal, but you know, at one point people were looking at five to seven day regimens. Cause not again, not everybody can do seven, uh, I mean, 10 to 14 days. So you do, and most of the adaptations to be fair, 75 to 80% develop, uh, in probably the first week of heat acclimation. So, you, you know, develop quite quickly and then they kind of get optimized. Um, if you go 15, 15, 20 days, for example. Um, so in the first few days, you do get some pretty good adaptations. I don't know how long you were in the sauna, but if you're in there, you know, five days, five minutes per day, 
probably not, but you know, 15, 20 minutes per day, you're probably starting to adapt a little bit. Um, whether you're, whether you'd be able to measure something physiologically that's substantial um, is another is another kind of question. But you're probably kind of starting to to um, to develop some adaptations. I mean, even regular exercise in cool conditions provides some measure of of acclimation or partial acclimation because again, when we exercise, we produce lots of heat and we're sweating. And I guess the main things to the main thing to remember is like to get acclimatized to the heat or acclimated to the heat, you need to increase your core temperature and it needs to stay elevated for a while. You need to be sweating, obviously to stimulate that, and you need to increase your skin temperature and your I guess, skin blood flow. So if your core temperature, skin temperature are elevated and you're sweating um, for a certain amount of time, then you'll start inducing those adaptations to the heat. Right, okay, that makes sense. The, um, I mean, you, you speak about global, global warming and climate change. What, strategies for people to uh, get more heat acclimated uh, acclimated i guess the sauna would play a big role in that or could play a big role in that yeah um, yeah and that's, like a, that's a very interesting question as well because one of the things we're trying to think about is what are sustainable solutions that people can you know can do in their home because uh, i could easily tell someone well you know there's a heat wave coming next week because usually you can kind of see when these are coming at least a few days in advance i could say well go into your bath put 40 degree water in there and sit in there for you know 20 to 40 minutes for five days straight well okay Maybe that's doable, but practically, you know, as soon as you get the water to 40 degrees and you sit in the bath, you know, in a few minutes, it'll start going down to 38, 37, which is your temperature. So you'll need to drain some water, heat it back up. So logistically, it gets a bit more difficult. The other thing with that as well is if you're sitting in a hot bath for a while, a lot of the blood goes to your legs. So if you stand up too quickly, you can have orthostatic intolerance or you can be hypotensive and kind of fall in your bathroom, hit your head. If you're by yourself, a bit dangerous. You need to be a bit careful. So there's kind of from, I guess, from a, passive heating perspective you know there's so solutions are kind of trying to be developed um but understanding how people i guess maybe just being more active exercising exposing yourself to outdoor climates not in a heat wave but you know um you know throughout summer kind of taking walks um and being active maybe you get some of those partial um adaptations that might help you um if it's if it's hotter I think it's uh, it's a really interesting lens to look at exercise through, and actually, you know, as we said, more and more people these days are taking more agency over their health and their their own physical activity. And actually, have ever stopped to look at their own temperature through the lens of exercise? Yeah. It, it, it's super interesting. Well, even exercise is an interesting one, right? Because I mean, you've heard the term exercise is medicine, right? So, if you exercise and you're healthier, you also reduce your risk of having some sort of cardiac event or a heat-related event during a heat wave, right? Elderly people who have chronic disease are, are unhealthy and so forth are the ones that are at most, are most at risk to experiencing um, heat stroke or a heat illness during, uh, during a heat wave. But if they, even if they just exercise and they're healthier and some of those chronic conditions are, are alleviated, well, then that reduces the risk as well. So it may improve their kind of resilience to the heat per se, because they're, they're fitter and they have partial acclimation, but just the fact that they're healthier um, might might help them through the heat wave as well, because VO2 max is probably the, the greatest predictor for um, longevity, right? So, you know, the fitter you are, uh, kind of has kind of more bang for your buck. You're better able to tolerate the heat, but you're also healthier. So you'll, you'll, you need less to tolerate the heat, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. Yes, so be severe stress. I'd be super interested to hear if there's any research out there on 
exercising in the heat, which I've learned today, would lead to greater vasodilation. And does that greater vasodilation help offset any sort of coronary heart disease or anything like this greater than just exercising in the cold? Less yeah. from a performance point of view, more from like a preventive yeah. health longevity standpoint. Now that's a good point. So, I mean, you vasodilate, but not much more because when the maximum vasodilation we can get from our skin is during passive heating, right? Because there's no competition, quote unquote, for blood flow. Because when we exercise, we need to send blood to the muscles. So when we exercise, we probably only reach 50 to 60% of our, in terms of blood flow to the skin, we probably only reach 50 to 60% of our maximum skin blood flow because a lot of the other, a lot of blood's going to the muscle. Um, but when you're passively heating, then you can eat, you can increase your blood flow to maximum. Um, but in terms of benefits, um, so that's where kind of the, I don't know if you saw some studies coming out of Finland associated with a reduction in all-cause mortality, a reduction in dementia in relation to how frequently people were doing saunas. Um, and there's a few, well, quite a few studies now that have come out with, um, so instead of heat, heat acclimation, it's heat therapy. So sitting in a hot, bath, sitting in a sauna, um, and helping with reducing um, cardiovascular disease. And the way, well, partly um, part of the, I guess, the, the mechanism that through which this occurs is through sheer stress. So by being in the heat, we increase skin blood flow and increases the stress or the sheer stress in the blood vessels. And that creates, um, it, it triggers, I guess, um, angiogenesis. So the formation of, of new blood vessels and so forth. So it kind of helps. Uh, from that perspective through the release of um, nitric oxide. Um, so there's benefits, kind of cardiovascular benefits to being uh, being in the heat. I didn't realize the heat can stimulate angiogenesis. I didn't know that. Just sorry, quickly for the listener as well, the vasodilation, if you think of uh, vasoconstriction would be a constriction of your vascular system. And Julian, please correct me if I'm wrong. And vasodilation would be to dilate, to do the opposite, to expand. That's right. So the blood vessels, yeah, expand or contract, yeah. Yes. And so angiogenesis would be the creation of new blood vessels. So that underlying structure would actually, I guess you're adding to the underlying structure. Is that yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then especially capillaries. So then the exchange of oxygen and, and CO2 in the blood and the muscles is, is improved. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I'm fascinated by the heat and all the sort of, I mean, Eloise and I are talking a lot about at the moment, like what in the next 10 years, what's not going to change of there's going to be more research going into the heat and a greater understanding of how it can affect our body. You know, in a sauna where BDNF goes up and what potential cognitive impacts that has or heat shock proteins that, um, you know, make, uh, what was it, yeast cells or mice? No, not yeast, not mice. It was, uh, I think it was pneumatoid worms or something live longer when they're injected with heat shock proteins, which get okay. elevated in the sauna. All these very early research, but nonetheless, yeah. directionally well, Pardon the interruption, but even with heat acclimation, your basal your basal level of heat shock protein kind of increases, so your body's in more of a state to deal with um, with the heat, and then the response is actually a bit dampened compared to the first acute uh, acute heat stress. So mm. there is an effect of the heat shock proteins. Super interesting, and I mean, I think when I say we're reasonably early with all this research at the moment, and it's only going to get more and more, uh, I guess, insightful. Uh, as you said, there's no, if you do it sensibly, the downside, it's not going to harm your performance, right? That's right. And actually you could be positioning yourself for benefits we don't quite know about yet. Yeah. Having said that, um, I would caution people doing it by themselves in their home and so forth. You know, you need to, you need to be careful not to get too hot. Um, especially in the home, sometimes it's difficult, right? If, you, if you're trying to cycle and, you know, you're closing the windows and you're having a heater on, well, it's not too bad, but I'd say just watch your heart rate. 
and because that's one of the ways you know heart rate and core temperature are quite well quite well linked so you know if you're getting to a heart rate's too high maybe lower your heart rate and try to maintain a given heart rate and you might find that you have to lower your work rate to maintain a given heart rate and then don't worry about that because that means your core temperature is probably uh, increased and plateauing another one is sometimes people put extra clothing or sometimes they put on paint suits right to limit evaporation of sweat so you can't sweat and basically you're creating an enclosed environment or encapsulated environment uh you can get quite hot so i would caution people just to be a bit careful not to go uh, too crazy yes. yes definitely you know it, it is a stressor at the end of the day right yes what role does um uh the heat have on glucose demand in the body so it comes back to what I was, well, there's a few things. So um, heat kind of release, uh, increases the release of epinephrine or kind of drives a bit more of that use of carbohydrate. But it's like I was saying before as well with the change in relative intensity. So even though, um, you know, if you exercise in a given work rate in the heat and in cool conditions, uh, you'll get to a steady state heart rate, core temperature in cool conditions, and that'll increase, like I was saying before, in relation to that VO2 max decreasing in the background. So as that's decreasing in the background, relative intensity increases. So if you measure your RER, so your respiratory exchange ratio, so when you're doing a VO2 max test, you know, you're measuring the oxygen and CO2 coming in and out. Um, and the RER is the relationship between those two. And it goes from 0.6 to about one and above one, but basically from 0.6 to one. So 0.6, you're using fats as fuel and one you're using carbohydrates or glucose and glycogen as fuel. So um, you're, you'll find that your RER increases as you're exercising in the heat with relative intensity increasing. So you are using more um, glucose and like I said, glycogen as, as a fuel source rather than, than fat. So it has to do with just being hot and um, I guess um, the release of some um, hormones, but also the change in relative intensity. Okay. So going into those kind of events, I guess being aware of the sort of slightly increased glucose demand might be sensible. Yeah. Okay. Depending on how long you exercise for as well, right? Because I mean, um, if you're exercising for anything under an hour, then you probably don't need to, to pop four gels in that hour, for example. Yes, yes. You yeah. You you do see some people in the in the gyms being quite liberal with the gels with the forty minute workout, right? But yeah. I guess the the, the, the elite athletes and the Iron Men and extreme endurance um practitioners slightly more yeah. relevant. Um this has been super, super interesting, Julian. I mean I've learned loads and inevitably with these calls when they're super interesting we end them and i have so many more questions but one one last question for you is um what what surprised you most about studying the human body in the in the heat a good question um probably how resilient um the human body is and even at, at how well it adapts to the heat um i've been a participant in probably most of the studies that i've done um and yeah it's it's quite difficult you know when you first do those sessions and and you first do like the pre the pre-testing whether it's a heat response test at a given work rate or or self-based exercise but by the end of it you see you know as someone who's done it you feel so much better and seeing other people do it as well um how well it actually works um so it's probably just yeah just reinforcing i mean we all know how resilient the human body is but like when you measure it and you can see it it's quite interesting mm. sort of the ultimate human uh superpower that isn't it, it sort of distinguishes yeah. us from every other species i mean the ultimate adaptation machine yeah. um so super super interesting i really enjoyed our chat where can we find you where can we keep up with your research and all the studies you're conducting and actually being yeah. part of as well 
Yeah, well, we mentioned I was Canadian, but I'm in Canberra now. So at the University of Canberra, the Research Institute for Sport and Exercise, and I lead the environmental physiology theme. So uh, you can certainly find me uh, find me there. So julian.perriard at canberra.edu.au. Um, yeah, feel free to fire off an email. Always happy to chat and discuss anything related to heat stress, as you probably uh, noticed today. Yeah, wonderful. Well, uh, Julian, appreciate you. Appreciate your time. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.